so leading up to the call with Dave, you were you were fanboying. I, is it fair to compare your affinity in your professional sphere uh, to Dave Rico to my affinity to Prince? <laughs> uh, well, it's going to be a lot closer on that comparison than their outfits, I'm sure. <laughs> that, <laughs> if we're going to make a comparison I'm... between Dave and Prince, probably the analogy is closer where you were headed than Dave yeah. is an exceptional. Uh, dresser and flamboyant. No, he's not. Since this not. is an audio podcast, I am not tested on that. They, they can't even look <laughs> it up. I'll tell you what Dave is. Dave's amazing. Um, and when I shared the uh, the Zoom video that you sent over um, mm-hmm. with Sophia, we both exclaimed the same thing. My God, does this man not age? It was really interesting. And the reason I happen to know what Dave would look like, aside from book covers and things like that, is because 15 years ago, as I mentioned in our our interview, um, I had occasion, uh, along with Sophia, to to meet Dave. And it went something like this. Uh, Dave and I had been interacting over some material I was ordering for a divorce support group that I was doing. I was doing some some work with folks uh, and we were using his wonderful lecture series called how relationships work. Um, And uh, at that time, because it was different from this time, you had to order things in like blocks of CDs, you know, in order to get one collection of recordings, you'd get this whole brick of CDs per person. And so I had to, I had to order these for the group. So Dave and I were trying to figure out um, a little, mailing snafu or something and so we ended up talking on the phone briefly and he said well let's see if we can get this figured out pretty soon because i'm going to be leaving the country soon and i just want to make sure i get everything to you that you need and i said oh excellent because i'm going to be leaving the country soon too uh where are you headed and he said oh i'm going to be in italy and i said huh that's funny because i'm headed to greece to get married and after that we'll be honeymooning in italy where in italy and he said rome and i said we're going to be passing through rome that's amazing what a small world and then you know we figured out our logistics and i hung up the phone at which point sophia said well did you ask him to lunch he's like (laughs) your freaking hero you talk about this guy all the time because he's really wonderful And I had to admit, sheepishly, it had not even remotely crossed my mind that Dave Rico might want to have lunch with me in Italy. So I called him back and he said, I would love that. And so he suggested a beautiful little Italian cafe and Sophia and I met him and hung out for something like three hours, hanging out just right there in Rome, having a wonderful talk about all kinds of things. And I learned some neat things about him. First of all, he is as kind as... And there is a reason in his lectures he can quote so much amazing material. And that's that he has. They're entirely from memory. Mm -hmm. Um, And we saw a few of those in the interview, you know, uh, last week where he he would pause to just sort of bring something back to mind. It was like he was looking it up, but on his in, inside his mind and out it would come. It was it was like that to hang out it, with he him does, too. Yeah, he does feel plugged in to something, right? He feels like he's attached to something that is hard to reach. Yeah. Yeah, he really is. And he's incredibly well-read, broadly and deeply well-read. Um, 
And with a memory like that and a mind kind of made for integration, it makes him quite a brilliant guy and a pretty special yeah. resource. So, so tell me about your reaction. You've had a couple of days to kind of sit with your conversation with him. And, and I, my assumption is that your conversation with him last week was, uh, a, a, to some extent, a novelty, right? There's nobody else kind of sitting with you. you your wife wasn't there. You were just kind of mano a mano. Um, have you been sitting with it over the last 72 hours? Good question. Um, well, it felt really good. Yeah, I mean, it felt really good to talk to him about a uh, a really rich uh, subject. Um, you know, one wonders when you're <laughs> when you're consuming that kind of material, and you come to the conversation like, will it be clear enough in my mind that I'm you know able to stay with him? Or um, and I felt great about that part, but I felt especially great that. Uh, he felt very much um, alive in his kind of thoughtful, measured, understated way. And uh, he also didn't do you. You had mentioned that he was such a great teacher and also uh, quite an economist uh, of language. Mm -hmm. uh, and he didn't he didn't leave you hanging once. Yeah, he's a very he's a generous conversationalist. Yes. He, it was I, I thought that was very powerful. Yeah, he he can be uh, he can be very um, you know brief uh, with his words, especially say e via email or something like that. Yeah. But as soon as the conversation started, it wasn't that way at all, and it wasn't that way in person. You know, over lunch either. He was um, he's very generous. If we just summarized for folks who are hearing this a week or more later, uh, you know, mm -hmm. um, so I spent a little time just kind of thinking about, so it feels a little presumptuous. As I heard it and jump in anywhere if you. An ironic title, if there ever was one. Yeah, it's a little guy that contains an awful lot, and and I think part of why he calls it little is because it's it's in fact a a small book, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it is. It's like if you took the other book that it's based on, his wonderful book, "The Five Things We Cannot Change and the Happiness We Find When We Embrace Them." And you were to just take your highlighted elements and summarize them perfectly that you'd get this book. Um, but it means it's quite dense. And so he's talking about this basic idea that life includes many givens, but only a few that will apply to every life and every person. So imagine just trying to do that for a minute. Like what's true for mm -hmm. everybody? <laughs> uh, yeah, that right, in itself is a fairly remarkable intellectual pursuit. And he said... I got interested in this subject based on the beautiful and what he called very mature prayer that's made famous in the 12-step process, known now as the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. So he's looking at what are the... And he boiled it down to five. And... <laughs> Of, I know. I mean, right. Can you imagine <laughs> having that kind of mind? Like I'm going to boil yeah, it down right. to five true things for everybody's life. And here's what and he then he finishes. 
and says, nailed it. Right? right. Like, that's Drop, amazing. Drop the mic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right. Except he's so humble, he would never do that. It's just, he would never it's say that. This, this, this submission, this offering. So here's what he comes up with. Number one. Every relationship, every life, every career, everything will change and end. Mm -hmm. Number two, things do not always go according to plan. Yeah, that's for sure. Can be a hell of an mm -hmm. understatement when you're looking at fairly big things like, you know, parenting <laughs> or yeah. divorce. Career, <laughs> money, divorce, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, life is not always fair. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean that that is tragically true sometimes and sometimes true in just sort of silly little ways, you know. But it's clearly present in my life, I'm sure it is in yours and often for me it's unfair in you know the privileged generous direction, right? Mhm. Mm yep. But it, yeah. it hurts when it's not. Pain is part of life. Number 4. And five, people are not loving and loyal all the time. There's something I admire and something that drives me a little bit crazy about how simply and plainly he puts these. Yeah. So just it's uh, it's very even, right? I mean, it just states it very succinctly. Yeah. So if these are the five givens, he then goes on to talk about how, especially the egoic part of us, which we might think of as so if our if our spirit is wrapped in a physical body so that we can be on planet earth our psyche is wrapped in a kind of egoic body that lets us uh function in the walk around world right it is it is the separate self that thinks he's dodge right mm -hmm. it's kind of a mind made self that from a profound spiritual point of view doesn't really exist but for now it's it's the wave in the ocean right this wave is different from all the other waves and it's called dodge that's the egoic self and there's a healthy ego and there's also this inflated ego as Jung would say this part that's got kind of this inflated sense of separateness and that is working harder than it should or than is functional to create safety and that part of us is working to keep us safe, especially from these five things. It's trying to deny that they're there. It's trying to ignore how much they hurt. It's trying to buffer ourselves against that pain. It's trying to control our experience of it. He talks about the face of ego, F-A-C-E, as fear, attachment, control, and entitlement. These are the ways in which the ego is functioning all the time. And its favorite sport, as he says, is retaliation. When it's not getting what it wants, when it doesn't get its way, it tends to retaliate. Mm -hmm. It's bitter about life or it's bitter about the people who weren't fair to us, who weren't loving every minute, who weren't, you know. Um, or becomes willfully blind to the pain of others who are experiencing these things. Yep. Or we just want to fix it because we don't want to just finally deal with the reality that other people hurt sometimes and there's nothing they can do about it. It wasn't because they did something wrong. Mm -hmm. and or because we weren't there to advise them so he then says so like so if the ego is kind of trying to control that stuff all the time this refusal to allow in these givens really is an act of control born not of being selfish or demanding but just out of our fear of life's in inevitable grief control is about grief we just don't want to hurt 
and grief has got a kind of hurt that's different from so many of the other hurts because it's recognizing there's nothing I can do about it. Like when we grieve somebody yeah. who's gone, who's left us or has died, and it's too late to do anything, we're just left with the sadness that it happened. He lays these out. The, the sadness for what we lost, the anger that, it, that we lost it, and the fear that we'll never get past it. How do you rationalize these five elements with Pete gestures broadly the world right now? Like right, you're talking about sort of the the deeply personal interpersonal grief, and there is eschatological grief right now just waking up and and attempting to go outside. Yeah, that's a hell of a good question. <laughs> Let me see if I can finish this little summary real quick, and then I want to jump right back right. to it. We'll start there. Does that sound okay? Okay. Yeah, it's fine. As, as we continue to try to assert control over things we are not meant to control, the ego builds. Our sense of separateness builds. And so does this low hum of kind of a of desperation that goes with failing to control the uncontrollable. And I love his quote, our life is a seesaw tottering between terror and control as long as we stutter at the word yes. Hmm. And the yes he's talking about is what Carl Jung would call the unconditional yes. This is the radical acceptance in Tara Brock's way of talking about it. Tara Brock. Um, what I love about this is it's far more than just an act of sanity, like stop banging yourself against a brick wall. It's not a door. It won't open, right? Mm -hmm. He's saying it's more than just an unwinnable war. It's, it's that, that we become far more open, loving people as we allow in the vulnerability of our true circumstances. We listen differently. We love differently. We're present in a very different way when we're not trying to outrun all of these givens, which are present so much of the time, right? So that helps us not only encounter our own pain differently, and it helps us encounter other people's, right? We're, we're much sure. more present for that too, but... And cur engaged and curious. Engaged right? and I curious mean, and ultimately... Rather than retaliatory or judgmental. Right. Or fixing and full of advice, jumping in with a, uh, a pointer instead of just hearing mm -hmm. somebody saying, I'm hurting today. Mm -hmm. As we walk down this path, what he would say is that we really expand in our humility and our courage to influence the world in loving ways at the same time. And that the combination is vital to our being our truest, most mature, spiritually mature selves. That the deep, truest self in us grows immensely when we can combine this humility and courage that goes with accepting life the way it really is and the way it really is for all of us and showing up differently in that way. Um, but also that what this offers is us is, is, a, is a kind of peace, a kind of serenity that is not available otherwise. It's not one way to get there. What he's saying is it's the only way to get there. And that's part of why all of the spiritual paths include so many elements of surrender. Back to your huge question, how in the world do we look at these five gigantic givens? 
Yeah, I, I just feel like like somebody, and this is what I'm trying to do as I'm listening to that conversation between you is to to take the personal experience and the guidance for navigating the personal experience of you know ownership, the weight of grief, the weight of of sort of trauma, and getting through that, and and feeling like I'm um, like I'm doing all the things. Let's just say I've I've hit level five and I've rung the bell and I'm doing all the things and I still open the door and and I see this world and in my world it's literally on fire and people are suffering at a way at a rate that I've never personally seen and we're dealing with a country that is culturally sort of tearing itself apart in and based on popular media and mass media and observation and so uh there is a certain i i think uh a, a certain crisis to acknowledge that that i'm curious how you feel like you're able to integrate and pivot these learnings into navigating the world right now that's a beautiful question <laughs> as you're talking what i'm aware of is every it really helps me understand why I feel as stressed and tired as I do right now and why <laughs> I'm sorry so, to heavy up on that. No, stuff. you're good, man. I mean, it's, this is the reality. This is what he's saying is yeah. this is what we lean into instead of leaning away from finally turn right. around in the saddle and at least face the direction the horse is walking anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And all five of these are dramatically more so this year than I've ever known all five to be. Everything changes and ends. Right. Holy shit, are things changing right now, right? Yeah. Right? Things are absolutely not going apart according to plan. It is not fair the way they are going. Pain is most decidedly part of this year in mm -hmm. so many ways. And my, are people not loving and loyal all the time in 2020? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all for of this. some, that experience of experiencing other people not being loyal and loving is new yeah and the new is jarring yeah in, uh, you know so here would be one example of how this book has affected me in a small way um just last night a friend of mine uh posted a reminder on social media <clears throat> about something president trump said quite famously a little while ago and i think she was hoping to put a, a little reminder out there that this is not the president she would like to have in office. A full-on firestorm ensued, right? Like, mm -hmm. we got folks who were saying, well, Biden's worse than other folks who were saying, you've got to be freaking kidding me, and back and forth it goes. And the person who was, you know, most fiery in her resistance to this post makes the statement... Well, all men are pussy grabbers, or most men are pussy grabbers. She she says, oh. which starts just the the whole thing got even oh, more and more kind of outrageous. Uh, I can't hear that without feeling the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Right, right. It's it is centrally why I hate Facebook. Right, right. So fair, absolutely fair. And there are a lot of people maybe some who are listening who would say yep that's that's true uh and others who would say that's really not true and really unfair mm -hmm. most of the people who were part of that argument only got more angry yeah i think largely influenced by rico's book 
I found myself pausing, leaning back a little bit into what I think I know as a trauma therapist and realizing, okay, there was the moment she said everything we needed to know. That was it. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's real pain here. Yeah. You don't say something like that if life didn't teach you something pretty cruel. Now, well, right. And, and everybody who's reacting to that, to that comment, is only reacting to a symptom. Right. Of her pain. Right. 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 Okay. Right. Which can either completely normalize Trump or can make both candidates who are both men sound like they're equally lecherous, dangerous people. So what the heck? Let's go with a guy who's yeah. who lines up more with my, you know, political preferences. But my friend happened to reach out by text. And so I just shared with her, you know, the moment she said everything you needed to know was this one. This is the part where she mm -hmm. was just telling you um, this isn't the conversation she can have. It's because it's not coming from a rational yeah. place. It's coming from pain. It's something different. Pain is part of life. Folks are not loving and loyal all the time. And the retaliatory ego jumps in for everybody and look at us go mm -hmm. right and so rather than jump into that whole mess and make it worse i was able to say something caring to her that let her turn around and be a little more caring to this person and mm -hmm. it it was a calmer sweeter and far more serene evening than i would have had if i had jumped into the outrageousness of i can't believe someone would say that well, and that's the good human thing to do. And it just demonstrates that I like I chose a different path, which is I don't engage on Facebook. Like I post on Facebook to the extent that my job requires it. And I don't engage because. Right. Because I, I feel like I am. Well, I'm learning something right. Every time we have these little conversations, I'm learning about like my uh, where my, where my muscles are toned. Yeah. And where they're most sort of twitch reactive and maybe, you know, may, and, and clearly the opportunity for me is to tone them in new directions. Mm. Right. Um, but to be protective. And I think this gets back to to the to to the, you know, to, to Rico stuff like uh, for me, I, I needed to protect myself and others by disengaging from inflammatory conversation. Absolutely. And, and that's that's not crazy by any means. Right. And largely, I've made a lot of that that same choice. I guess it's it's an example of one of the places that's most inflamed. Where for I, I found myself more available um, to feel compassion than I might have otherwise. I ended up sending my friend um, a copy of a, a beautiful poem, one that I think about all the time, especially the very last line of it which I'll emphasize when I read it to you. It's called Compassion by Miller Williams. Do you know this poem? No, never heard it. It says, have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems conceit, bad manners, or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard, no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars go on down where the spirit meets the bone. Somebody who would write something like that at some level gets the givens of life, right? This yeah, is somebody right. who can write something that loving because at some level he knows pain is such a part of life that you can just assume that retaliatory BS we're getting from that person comes from a hurt place, not from somewhere else. Yeah. Well, th that's where I, I find so much of the 
so much of the struggle that I reflect on uh, with this conversation is that aspirationally, I feel like in order to, if I aspire to deliver good in the world, then I like I'm finding myself being more reactive and more responsive as the world continues to do crazy things in my view and incapable of responding in a way that delivers good in the world, right? Because the veil drops so quickly when I hear that kind of stuff that I'm incapable of seeing around that corner like you just demonstrated. And that's, I, I really... Um, I, I just I I aspire to that. I aspire to to having the ability to to see without the fog of confused rage. That this this is where the person told me everything I needed to know. Eventually, I get there. It's not like I'm incapable of complex thought, but my twitch, my trigger finger, is too heavy. Yeah, yeah. I really get it. I have got a lot of that in me, man. Like I, I am a heartbeat ahead at, at absolute best, working with people all day long because mm-hmm. I find these givens almost intolerable sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be in a world that's not fair. I don't want to be in a world with this much pain. I don't want to be mm-hmm. in a world where beautiful things are ending all the damn time. And I have a really hard time believing in those endings when hard things are happening right in front of me. It feels hard to yeah. believe they're going to end. It seems like they just get worse kind of stuff, right? This is hard. Right. Um, and I appreciate, I was, I was thinking a little bit this morning, like, so how does this conversation with Dave compare to the one with my brother, Ben, in our first episode? Yeah. And sure. both of them really are advocating for something that is very Taoist in, in Tai Chi, they would say soft overcomes hard. So my brother is talking a lot about surrendering into our inner experience, surrendering into our feelings. Dave's talking about surrendering into our outer experience. My brother would say it's inevitable. We're going to be feeling angry, sad, scared, ashamed, like all of these things are going to come up and that the only piece is to go toward them. We can't manage our way out. We're not going to control them. And Dave's saying all of those are true because our outer experience includes these five givens. (laughs) They keep happening. They're going to keep happening. And you can simultaneously soften to them and find courage to to make influence where you don't have control. Mm -hmm. So maybe in some small way, maybe getting lucky a little bit, but... I I could have a little bit of influence last night in a way that helped cool the fires of one friend and take some of the suffering out of her evening a little bit, right? And she might have turned around and done that in some nice way online. I don't know. Um, but I like to think that when I can be softer, I respond in the way you're hoping to. Yeah, I mean, I think about that in, in the respect of the mechanics of the social network right mm-hmm. uh that we know that negative that negativity bias uh right it it reproduces itself very very quickly but i have to carry hope that that what you did that positivity bias to cool the jets uh a little bit um can spread if not as quickly as pervasively yeah as um obstinately i hope yeah You know, I guess the way I think of it is when I go hard like that, 
at some level, it's because I can't stand the heartbreak. Yeah. Right? Well, and that's a protective mechanism. Right. Too, right? All five of these damn things are heartbreaking. Yeah. yeah. I'm protecting myself. And so when I go hard, just like in Tai Chi, something I've studied for a whole lot of years, they talk about as soon as you're scared, you go, you get stiff, but then you become a really easy lever for somebody to throw. And when you stay really soft, your options are open in really important ways. This is true in our conversations. This is true in how, how we deal with our own experiences, our own feelings. And I hear both Dave and Ben saying that at some level, both of these positions of surrender are heartbreaking, mm. but only through that heartbreak do our hearts break open, right? Yeah. Like what you're talking is about is a very open-hearted, undefended way of being with people. And especially in the world of, you know, freaking Facebook, where it's yeah. really easy to say very extreme and harsh things. Uh, we're likely to feel very heartbroken. I feel deeply sad beneath all my anger that the world can sound this crazy right now. Yeah. Right? I mean, I hear things that make no sense to me. And I think I make no sense to them, and that's heartbreaking too. And on my better days, you know, with when I can release this control over inner and outer circumstances and everybody else... I can, I can sense into what Dave's getting at, that there's a kind of serenity, a fulfilled peace, maybe, that really was the object. I mean, it was the goal of all my defensiveness and all of my goal-directed willfulness. I just wanted mm -hmm. a sense of fulfillment and peace. Sure. Does that make sense? Like, how weird yeah. is it that surrendering to these givens... It gets me there faster than overcoming them or attempting to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I had this conversation with a with um, a colleague who was talking about you know we were we were actually talking about parenting right we we're mm -hmm. talking about parenting stuff and and um, you know I had I had made this deal with my son that you know if he kept his grades up through middle school that I would get him a new phone. And mm -hmm. he'd have a choice of whatever phone he wanted. He kept his grades up. And I thought that's a that's a lever that I would pull in my world or have pulled. And I would I would respond to that in a certain way. Like there is a it's an if then statement. Mm -hmm. And his response was. So like, what kind of phone do I get if I don't keep good grades? <laughs> like, he, just, he just immediately sees through it and is like, what what are the consequences of the easy path? <laughs> and I think about that. <laughs> Things do not always go according to plan, Peter. Oh, God. He's too, you know, he's too smart for his own good. And um, and so I, you know, I think about that in terms of, of the consequences and punishments of living right now, right? The consequences are the if-then statements, right? That that if if I behave in a certain way, then I expect a certain result. The punishments are the surprises, right? And in parenting, you want to set up if-then statements that that are, so that we're on the same team. Like, gosh, it's a real bummer you didn't keep your grades up. And the consequences are you don't have choices as much as you, you would have or, you know, whatever the case is. But the punishment is you didn't keep your grades up. You're grounded. You're just it's a thing that just comes out of the blue with a hammer falls. For me, waking up every day, I felt like I had an understanding at least at some rudimentary level, 
an adult of some decades that I could get up out of bed and understand the consequences of the choices I make. And the weight of the world when I reflect on Rico and the truths is that my interaction with the world tends to end more in punishment Hmm. than in consequence. Because the if-then statement is, if, nope, right? Like, it's just you thought you knew what was going to happen, but it turns out you don't. You don't know anything about what's going to happen next. And you just have to be able to to adapt. And that's hard. Yeah. That's hard to learn. Yeah, it is. It is hard. How do, how do I go soft for a moment yeah. before exerting influence and finding a way to rise up? you know, bravely and, and, uh, dust myself off and head for what I want. Yeah. Another place this really shows up, I think in ways that are really challenging, um, is like, what do you do when the appropriate response is outrage? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I've got, because I'm human, I'm going to have my own sort of worldview about what things most outrage me, but I can't pretend that um, folks of other per- political persuasions don't have every right to be outraged by things that drive them crazy, too, um, or that we don't all line up on the same side of outrage about some awful things we see sometimes. What do we do? Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to be soft and take action right like yeah the fear is i won't have the energy to do something if i'm too compassionate and there's a little bit of truth Mm -hmm. to that natalie burke is a is a wonderful writer and she tells this story about and she's she writes from the perspective of just like african-american advocacy right black advocacy capital b black advocacy and she says you know on on being an ally she says if i'm let's say i'm going to war and i'm in the trench with somebody and i look to my right and i see somebody who looks like you talking about a you know middle-aged white guy uh and uh who says yes i'm all for the cause and then I turn to my right and I see a guy who looks like me, whose survival depends on winning this fight. Who am I going to trust more, right, in, in this fight? I'm going to trust the person who understands the context of my experience so that they, they understand the, the sort of battle that I have to wage when I have to go hard. And the person on the other side who's in it because they know philosophically whatever the cause is, is the right thing to do. They have an easier out. They can leave. Their survival does not depend on change. Right. And that is, that is a, that's an anchor for me uh, right now. It's just reflecting on that perspective. When you go hard, if you, if you're always going hard, then all you have is just this one note signal. Like you can't, you can't ever adapt, yeah. I don't think. I guess what I would add to that, though, and that I've heard, you know, friends of color point out to me quite explicitly is, and yet both are absolutely needed in that trench. Yes. Right? Yeah. The other is, you know, the person whose survival depends on it, who who knows every lick of that pain and who is as outraged as she will absolutely be able to go hard with her when she's t- it's time to go hard. But 
that's not always the most influential response. Right. The outrage is right. absolutely justified, but sometimes the response is softer. It's to say, yeah. hey, it's not just you, you very bad person who's racist. It's everybody. We all have got these biases and we have yeah. got to figure out a way to talk about them rather than act them out. And this yeah. can lend you know, a different response sometimes from the other side. Sometimes when we go soft, it softens the other side. When we can cool, it cools the other, you know. And so yeah. we all need to be in this together in our in our different ways. Um, well, it's exactly that you just said. I mean, I feel like I want to frame that because like that experience, exactly what I was getting to. Influence does not equal outrage. Right. Right. I mean, that's the then, or, or is is not equal to or greater than outrage. Right. And outrage does not equal inf influence. So, yes, just because my friend absolutely in my mind trounced this person uh, point by point with lots of help, you know, on why this was just not an acceptable statement from a future president. It didn't in any way change the other person's point of view. It didn't work at all. It just hurt. And the more the person hurts, the more sure they are they're, they're fighting against badness, right? We're going to learn from Ted Klontz in our next interview some really wonderful stuff about how confrontation is one of the hugest obstacles to change. It doesn't work. Yeah. It wants to work. It damn well should work, but it doesn't work. The research is real clear. It makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit because that's instinct. That's like human instinct. Of course, confrontation works because somebody, two people will get into a ring and they will slug it out until one is standing. Right. And that's how change happens. Right. And that's is the winner. victory. Right. And it's a, it's a particularly Western view of conflict, right. too. I think Western and, and uh, right. uh, Western European. Right. So, you know, uh, we won World War One. Um, you know, a whole lot of conflict, a whole dad. lot of confrontation. Yeah. Worked just perfectly, <laughs> right? And what did it do, right. you know, when we then won the peace? We set yeah. up World War II. Did we win anything? Thank goodness we learned those lessons and went to Vietnam. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> this country that stands for, you know, peaceful self-rule um, has been at war almost our entire history. Yeah. And I don't mean to s invalidate absolutely every bit of that. I'm certainly not speaking in any way against the incredibly brave veterans out there who are, you know, s serving ideals and totally. keeping us 100%. safe. I'm just saying it isn't, it, there are no wars that end wars is the problem. Um, and, and I think, you know, if we just boil that back down into our lives, the wars we wage against the givens we don't like aren't working as well as we wish they were. I'd love to read a couple quotes from the book, could I? Sure. Speaking of somebody who did things differently, listen to Martin Luther King. This is such a lovely piece of writing about kind of his understanding over his lifetime about the, the value of losing the fight for control. He writes, my personal trials have also taught me the value of unmerited suffering. As my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways I could respond to my situation, either to react with bitterness 
or to seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. Recognizing the necessity for suffering, I've tried to make of it a virtue. If, not, if only to save myself from bitterness, I have attempted to see my personal ordeals as an opportunity to transform myself and heal the people involved in the tragic situation which now obtains. I have lived these last few uh, years with the conviction that unearned suffering is redemptive. Now, I got to tell you, man, I'm not there yet. I am, I am not where Dave and Martin Luther King and Gandhi seem to have gotten so beautifully, which is like that level of openness to unearned suffering. There is still a big part of me in resistance, but I can feel it softening as I read this book. Uh, and as I have this conversation with Dave and as I kind of live with these words more in my mind, like I can feel myself letting go a little of control and finding some of the beautiful things that, that come of allowing myself, you know, the, the full experience, the real experience of life, including some of the inevitable givens. Um, there's another beautiful part of this book. Beautiful is not the word. Really informative. This is helpful because there's, there's a, a part of this book, page 106, where he starts to lay out really clearly, point by point, what are some of the things we get from losing our fight against these givens? Like, because otherwise it's just sort of this weird general promise that we grow mm -hmm. spiritually mature. What the hell does that mean? Whatever does that mean? Yeah. I mean, that's, I feel like that's a different conversation. What does it even mean? I think what he's saying might it might help us just to hear the details. So he's saying only in changes in only in changes and endings do we find out how we hold on or let go. We learn a ton about our attachment, right? The places where we're really not in flow with where life wants to go. We are exerting will, right? Mm -hmm. He adds, only in failed or foiled plans do we find out about a larger plan afoot that has our best interests at heart, trusting the heartfulness of the universe and discovering our spiritual potential. So he's, he's talking there. Um, he mentions in the book, synchronicity, this beautiful concept by Carl Jung of meaningful coincidence that sometimes when we can just let go a little bit of our willful focus on the one and only outcome that would be okay, we can be more okay with disappointment leading to something even better. He says, only in th when things are not fair do we find our dark side, which seeks retaliation, or our kindly side, which looks for restoration and lets go if restoration cannot happen. Sometimes we're in relationships where restoration isn't possible. This is really an abusive exchange, and we have no choice but to let go. But first... We soften and we find compassion and we move with them in a more loving way to influence this relationship to heal, as King was talking about. Only when we suffer, that is, you know, with, you know, pain is part of life, do we find our courage and our depth and learn compassion for others suffering. And only when others are disloyal and unloving do we find out if we can really love. Uh. Right? It's easy uh, to love somebody who's a piece of cake. Right, right. Who's only doing the good things. It's hard to love somebody when they've just said that one thing that you had to respond to. Ouch. When you when they just said that one thing that you find so personally, culturally 
disagreeable. Yeah. And still see their pain, see through the comment to their pain. Yeah. So from his point of view, like this entire thing, what is spiritual maturity? It is love. And I was like, what is that? What does that mean? You know? And then I realized, name anybody historically or in the present you think of as spiritually mature. I defy you to think of a single example of somebody you think of as spiritually mature who doesn't show themselves to be profoundly loving when others can't be. <laughs> Every one of them. Christ, Buddha, Muhammad, over and over and over, right? All of them are examples of folks who, can, who seem to find love where love seems not to be. This is beautiful. Two quick examples come to mind before we wrap up. And then I want to read you a quick quote and we'll stop. But I, I have, I've heard a lot about Mandela's days in solitary confinement where he was mm -hmm. sentenced to daily beatings. And he realized what was killing him weren't the beatings or the isolation. It was that he had nobody to love. And he came to a very purposeful decision that the only people to love because they were the only ones he could encounter at all were the guards who came to beat him. So he chose to love them. <laughs> and he said, I can't tell you that the beating stopped because they were ordered to continue. I can tell you that not a single guard could make it more than a week after that without asking for a transfer. Wow. Another example is of a, of a Buddhist Lama that was held by the Chinese for some time and likely tortured and so on. And in his interview talking about this, he shook his head and said those were very dangerous times. He was asked, what do you mean? Do you mean, did you fear for your life? And he said, well, sure, but that's not what I was referring to. It was very dangerous because I almost lost compassion for my captors. So that's a kind of spiritual maturity that's beyond me, Pete. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. I can see by the look yep. on your face, you're like, yep, not there yet. Although it's interesting to to reflect, like, you know, the our, our own deepest sort of human truth comes out when we're in times of stress and struggle and having to comfort others and those kinds of things. And and I don't know, I need to reflect more on this because I, I wonder, I, I wonder if I ask those for whom I have had the the blessing and opportunity and challenge to comfort in their times of needs, what they would say about my impact. Yeah. I wonder, like in terms of a, a 360 review on your empathy or <laughs> your how, am compassion? <laughs> how am I doing? How am I doing? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I think we're going to learn a ton about that from Ted in the coming episode yeah. because he is truly one of the most compassionate people I've ever encountered. And he will talk to you yeah. about the mechanics of it in a sense, in a really interesting okay. way. Yeah. Here's a, a sweet quote that I thought maybe we'd finish on with from the book. In the connections that fulfill us, we discover how utterly open our hearts can be. And in those that disappoint us, we find out how tenderly vulnerable our hearts can become. In any case, it's ultimately between one heart and another that the manna of human wholeness is exchanged, bestowed, and blessed. How fortunate we humans are that love, just love, turns out to be the only dawn it takes to dispel our isolation. Oh. I say that on the subject of spiritual maturity, right? If each of these ones who are ahead of us on that path are more loving than we are, maybe that's what we're looking for. Yeah. I think that's what Dave would say. 
Well, thanks for your support on this journey, my friend, as we get launched. And you, this is these are weighty things for first two episodes. Come on, man. I know. More comedy. <laughs> <laughs> We're still lining can up we... the guests. We'll lean heavier in. Yeah. Can we make someone laugh? Yeah. We'll, yeah. We'll... We need more, you know, Foley sounds and fart jokes uh, <laughs> in order to really bring this thing home. Right. Because <laughs> that's going to make all the difference. I will make a, a prime purchase for overnight delivery of a whoopee cushion, Pete. Of a whoopee cushion. We would each, and I'll just stand on them. I'll, I'll just, just put one under on each them. foot. There and you go. On cue. All right. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Well, friend. nice work. Rico was fantastic. Hope he comes back. I hope yes. he didn't tro- totally screw it up. <laughs> I hope so, too. <laughs> Love you, Pete. I hope so, too. Thanks, bud.